This is Scott Thompson. Welcome to the Scott Thompson Show podcast. Thanks for listening. Tell your friends. Feel free to subscribe. Coming up on today's show, will the world hold China to account for COVID-19? Are Canadians aware that Irving Oil in Newfoundland wants Alberta oil and is willing to send a tanker down through the Panama Canal and back up again to get it? Things are starting to reopen as we head down the backside of COVID-19. It's all coming up on the Scott Thompson Show podcast. Today on the Scott Thompson Show on 900 CHML. Obviously, uh, COVID-19 continues to ravage the world. Uh, Many are starting to hold uh, China to account for this. Now there's chatter uh, coming from their side about the country readying for armed confrontation over this. My goodness, it's uh, it's getting out of hand. All we're looking for is truth. Let's bring in Charles Burton, Associate Professor, Department of Political Science, Brock University, has many years uh, studying China and is well aware of these situations. Charles, thank you so much for the time. Hope you're doing well during this time of self-isolation. Well, it's been a good time to catch up on my reading, Scott, and especially reading about the U.S. and China. <laughs> You know, it, it, there was an interesting report we had uh, last week from one of our reporters at uh, Global News in Vancouver, and it was in in regard to fronts that were here in this country and in other countries from China, specifically in regard to uh, when this uh, pandemic first started, when it was first announced, any delay in getting information uh, from China to the severity of all of this, and now uh, reports saying that uh, they were using that time to uh, stop stockpile medical supplies and inventory uh, from around the world and such. Now we're talking about this report uh, in regard to uh, armed confrontation. I want to play just a little clip of uh, Sam Cooper uh, from last week. Go ahead, Will. There's a powerful agency called the United Front Work Department. This is an organ of the Chinese Communist Party, and uh, it's become more known to Western intelligence in the past 10 years what they do, and essentially what they do is they have operatives in all consulates worldwide. These operatives, uh, really, there's no other way to say it, meddle with uh, foreign student groups in Canada and other countries. They set up or infiltrate uh, Chinese-Canadian business associations, trade groups. They uh, attempt to influence academia, even media, we're told. And really, it's a, an influence organization. They are there to execute uh, Beijing's foreign policy all around the world and also facilitate espionage and secure strategic resources. Your thoughts on uh, Sam Cooper's reporting and what he had to say, Charles? Oh, yes. I think that uh, the Chinese Communist Party's uh, United Front Work Department is designed to try and um, extend China's interests by uh, prevailing upon persons of Chinese origin in Canada and engaging in various forms of, uh, of bribery and seduction of uh, opinion makers and policy makers here. You know, we, we know that, for example, that the, the Chinese um, diplomatic corps in Canada is much larger than that of the United States here. China has more diplomats accredited to Canada than any other country. And the um, suspicion is that a lot of those people are involved in this united front work, which is uh, exceeding the bounds of normal diplomacy to try and extend the Chinese regime's influence and interfere 
in Canadian um, dis- political decision-making. So, you know, it, it's something that's not just in Canada, of course. It's all around the world that, that the Chinese government puts an awful lot of resources and technology into this kind of disinformation and um, and bribery to try and further their their interests, and including cyber espionage and and ensuring that governments don't criticize um, China's activities uh, within China and abroad with regard to human rights and uh, support for rogue regimes and extension of their territory in the South China Sea and so on. So, you know, Sam is doing a lot of work on this and the relationship of um, of uh, criminal gangs uh, to um, the Chinese uh, regime's activities in Canada. And I think we'll be seeing a lot more out of him in the uh, months ahead. Is this getting out of hand? What can Canada do regarding this? I mean, you know, everybody's complaining about Donald Trump wanting to make America again, but at least he's not trying to take over the world. Uh, I mean, this is greatly influencing other situations. We've certainly seen the crisis that's been uh, caused by by COVID-19. What can Canada do about this? What can the rest of the world do about this? Well, As we have obviously become too dependent on China. Oh, I think there's no question about that in terms of supply chains, that you know, it's a bad idea for our security to be uh, dependent on a country like China that doesn't respect its uh, trade commitments. You know, when China cut off $3 billion annually of canola seed exports into China on false grounds that our canola seeds contained, uh, shipments contained contaminants in the non-seed dockage portion, you know, that was just a gross violation of of a trade agreement, the basis for that is completely without uh, any scientific finding. So, you know, if we are dependent on China for supplies, we have to recognize that for political reasons, the Chinese government may um, simply uh, make up some excuse and not and not fulfill its contracts. And you know, we're seeing that over and over again. Um, Chinese government, uh, the Australian government proposed uh, to support the idea of an investigation into the causes of the COVID-19 and whether the Chinese government had in fact delayed in its international reporting about human-to-human transmission to the WHO, which then affected um, how Canada responded. And the Chinese government, uh, through their ambassador, issued a statement threatening to stop the export of Australian wine beef into China, a major market for Australia and to stop uh, Chinese people from coming to Australia for tourism and educational purposes. So the use of of political levers, I'm sorry, economic levers to achieve China's political ends is clearly there. So, you know, from that point of view, it's quite different from dealing with a, a society like the United States where we know what's happened. I mean, certainly, I think every country in the world has probably not responded to the COVID-19 in the early stages as well as they would have if they knew then what they knew now. But we know what happened in the United States and we know what Donald Trump did and, and you know, the statistics are are reliable and transparent. But with dealing with the People's Republic of China, we really can't rely on any statistics that come out of that country or any statements by the government with regard to the um, sources of this virus and and uh, and even today what they know about um, the nature of this disease. Will China be held to account for the chaos that it has created, or will Donald Trump muddy the water so then it becomes, well, if Donald Trump says it, it can't be true? 
Well, I think that there is uh, there's a statement from the White House that uh, came into my email just this morning bringing up what you said, which was that the U.S. government says that the Chinese government purposefully um, deceived the international community about um, the danger of the COVID-19 so they'd have time to import into China uh, masks and other protective gear from foreign countries, you know, specifically the 3M and 95 masks. Uh, you know, the, the evidence for that has not been clearly set out. It might be true, but um, certainly I think before making a very serious accusation like that, you really need to, to present the evidence, and it has to be a pretty airtight case. So I think that um, that one and um, Secretary of State Pompeo's assertion that the virus may have been manufactured in a Wuhan lab, yeah. and um, it was either done on purpose or through um, negligence that the uh, that the pathogen was released into Wuhan, you know, still, it's too soon to make those kind of, of lurid claims. We really need to have the the information and the investigation done properly. The, the question is, the Chinese government clearly does not want to cooperate in any international scientific investigation on epidemiological grounds so that we can, you know, ensure that, that this kind of pandemic um, can be to the extent possible averted in future and therefore you wonder if the Chinese government has something to hide. But, uh, you know, I think certainly there's a lot of skepticism about the motivation of the Trump regime, particularly with the potential for 100,000 Americans to die of this pathogen, and certainly some culpability being on the part of the Trump government for not responding um, vigorously and properly to it. Um, you know, our, our rate of mortality per capita is uh, less considerably less than that in the United States, I think because our government got it a bit earlier on. Uh, now we're hearing reports uh, out of China saying that they're warning of armed conflict. Uh, surprised that it's gone to this level? Well, you know, certainly I think that um, we are at a at a breaking point with China's violations of the norms of the international rules-based order in diplomacy and trade. You know, we have the two Canadian hostages, Michael Kovrick and Michael Saver, who've been held for over 500 days with no proper charges or any evidence that they had engaged in, in any criminal activity whatsoever. And, um, you know, China just is not prepared to engage in, in free and fair and reciprocal trade. So the question is, will this lead to a, to a, a global conflict, or will we be able to... Um, distance ourselves from the Chinese regime until such time as we're convinced that they're prepared to maintain their their international commitments to the United Nations and the WTO and deal with the nations of the world in a in a reciprocal and fair manner and um, you know up to now that doesn't seem to be too likely under the current Chinese Communist Party regime but you know it could be that discontent over the Chinese government within China particularly with with regard to the handling of the COVID-19 may lead to pressure for political change in, inside that country. And certainly, if China was a democracy and, uh, and respected the rights of its citizens, then it would be a nation with which Canada could engage in much more productive and mutually beneficial collaboration. So, you know, there's still a lot of unknown factors there as to whether there's a war coming up, but I, I pray that uh, we won't see that. 
Um, what will what will China be like one year from now? Uh, consider, you know, let's just uh, hopefully consider that this slowly we, we get a handle on this, and then eventually a vaccination. Uh, what will be the world the world image of China one year from now? Well, I think that certainly, you know, it appears that Chinese government decision making is culpable for delays in reporting to the world about human-to-human transmission of this disease. So, you know, it could be that politically motivated misinformation issued by the Chinese government, I think primarily for domestic purposes, has led to a lot of unnecessary deaths in Canada and countries around the world. So the question is, to what extent can we expect the Chinese regime to be held accountable for the for the terrible loss of life and the economic losses that have incurred as a result of the spread of the coronavirus. And, you know, there's speculation that if China had only been um, honest just, you know, a week or two early, that the thing could have been contained and we wouldn't be seeing the uh, the terrible suffering that's going on around the world as a result. And, you know, it's only now starting to spread into parts of the third world like sub-Saharan Africa. So, we're certainly not uh, not past the the worst of this epidemic, and so I, you know I, I think it would of course be desirable if the Chinese government was frank and forthcoming about what happened, and then we could uh, deal with it from there. If the Chinese government continues to prevaricate, make ridiculous assertions such as the virus really originated in the United States and was brought to China on purpose by U.S. troops attending the the October of last year, uh, World Military Games in Wuhan, you know, and that kind of thing, then I think that we may want to do some sanctions against China to to ensure that no regime in future can behave in such an appallingly irresponsible way in the face of the, the risk of human death and illness. Will the will the world continue to be as dependent on China? Will the world continue to vo- to view China as the golden goose? I think not. I mean, I think certainly even for Canada, you know, we're really going to be looking to alternative markets for agricultural commodities and the strengthening of the Trans-Pacific Partnership because China has proven itself not to be a reliable and trustworthy partner for us in in trade. And so I, I think from that point of view, you know, there will be a change from this idea that we should be um, globalizing our trade by... by um, uh, diversifying over to cheaper labor and, and cheaper sources in the People's Republic of China and uh, think more about our, our economic security and and the fact that, that you know, if you, if you put too much trust in the Chinese regime, chances are they will use that um, economic leverage to engage in political coercion. And, and really, you know, for Canada, it's about protecting our, our democracy and and values and our role in the world against the Chinese regime that that seeks to to achieve a hegemonistic dominance over the planet and to impose the values of their regime, non-autocratic power-based values over Canadian commitment to fairness and justice. Charles Burton has been with us, Associate Professor, Department of Political Science, Brock University. Charles, always a pleasure talking to you. Thanks so much for the time and insight. Much appreciated. 
Have a good afternoon, Scott. All right. You know, we've had, uh, as we're, we're in week number eight now, week number eight of uh, social distancing, self-isolation, whatever you want to call it. And uh, slowly things are starting to open up. Uh, a lot of people, and, and we've been fortunate, uh, we, we got a dog about uh, a year ago, last year. So he's just over a year now, and and uh, he's getting lots of walks <laughs> during COVID-19 uh, and, and certainly lots of intention and uh, lots of attention rather. And uh, and pets certainly are very comforting at this time. Uh, that being said, is it the time to adopt a pet? Can you adopt a pet? Let's bring in Marion Emo, CEO of Hamilton Burlington SPCA and is with us now. Marion, thanks for the time. Much appreciated. Oh, thank you, Scott. So what is the policy in around pet adoption at this time at the SPCA? Well, we have renewed adoptions um, as of last Tuesday. So just a week ago today, we launched what we're calling the no contact adoption. So this is a process that has been used in other shelters. So we've um, adapted it for our shelter. And Scott, essentially what it means is um, the potential, the, the, the family that wants to adopt um, goes through a process with our adoption counselors and ends up adopting a pet and taking a pet home, having no face-to-face contact with the adoption counselor and having no touch time with the pet that they adopt. Mm. How so that, that's got to be difficult because, you know, I've been into the SBCA and the first thing you do is just go from yeah. play, a cage to cage and go, oh, my, look at that one. Look at that one. And, and so on. Yeah. So yeah. how difficult is that to do when you can't really make interaction, have an interaction with the pet? Well, so we're learning as we go. And we had an opportunity to learn in the last 10 days of March. So when we knew March 16th, that's sort of when the world changed. And uh, we had many um, uh, ready-to-rehome pets. And so we started doing adoptions by appointment and having very few people um, on site at any one time. Now what we're doing is all adoptable pets can be, view- can be viewed online. Their profiles can be read. We encourage people. If there's an adoptable pet that... Um, touches your heart, uh, touches your soul, indulges, you know, everything you want in a pet, then call us and talk to us about um, uh, what your history is having a pet, uh, why you're interested in having a pet now. And and it's an opportunity to have a conversation about what might be some unique characteristics or behaviors or special needs of that pet. Then if the um, person remain, continues to be interested, they go through an application process, there's um, ongoing discussions, there may be videos available of that pet at play. Some of those animals would have been in foster homes, so we might have an insight as to how they get along with a range of ages, a range of people, and even another pet in the home. And once the process is concluded, um, then all the final arrangements are made um, through email, online conversations, by phone. Uh, a time is arranged for the new pet parent to pick up their pet, and they arrive at the shelter, and we have a receiving area where um, the pet can be ready there for pickup. 
And behind our glass doors, we have our adoption associate and the other staff are on site and we take pictures. And so far, um, it's been a fabulous process. It is it has more than met our expectations to get some of our um, animals rehomed. And so far, there's been very positive feedback from those families who have adopted. So, Is this the right time to be doing this during a pandemic like this? Some have concerns because, yeah, you know, not yeah. all of us are working. It's, it's a different time. Yeah. Or is that a good time? Well, you know, that's a great question. Um, let me say this. I've been at the shelter now in my role for seven years. And it amazes me that every single day, every year, people come in looking at the animals, thinking about adoption or asking about adoption, whether they're working, whether they're on summer vacation, whether it's Christmas break. The other thing that I would say is sometimes there's a myth about what is the best time to adopt. Um, For instance, for many years, people said, well, shouldn't adopt at Christmas because those pets are maybe, you know, it's a whim or it's a gift. But in fact, that can be a very good time to adopt, as now might be, because there's an opportunity to orient um, the whether it's a cat or a kitten or a puppy or what a dog, to orient them to their new family, to their new home, and get acquainted with their new surroundings. Because this is when people have time to do that. Um, as always, we look over the year and to see, okay, was there a spike in return adoptions? And how do we understand that return adoption? Was it a mismatch? Was it, did somebody in the house have allergies? But we don't see any particular um, peaks or spikes, whether it's for the Christmas vacation, a summer vacation, or whatnot. So we will continue to um, evaluate the program. But I, I do take your point around, you mentioned how dogs are getting walked lots. We, of course, have lots of dog walkers. We don't have as many dogs right now. Volunteers want to keep walking the dogs, and and uh, we could walk our dogs all day long, but just like people, that's way too much exercise. Right. So, mm-hmm. yes, we do, um, in talking with families, we do say, you know, even though you have lots of time, um, just like with the people in your family, the people that you were isolating with, you need to give your new pets some time to be on their own. Yeah. They need a rest, too. They need quiet space. They need privacy from time to time. So it's important to let them have that opportunity. Marion Emo has been with us, CEO, Hamilton Burlington SPCA. There still is a process involved to do this. Just like anything, it's a bit more complicated this time out. Just contact the SPCA. Marion, thanks so much for the time and insight. Good luck. Oh, thanks, Scott, and stay safe. You're listening to the Scott Thompson Show podcast on 900 CHML. Wow, is this uh, is this an ingenious solution, or is this just the pathetic reality of what has happened to Canada's uh, energy industry? Uh, Irving Oil, which is a massive uh operation on the east coast uh and and the reason they were initially building the energy east pipeline was to get uh alberta oil out to um the refineries at at irving uh, as opposed to just buying it off the saudis all the time who 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 don't have the uh environmental concerns that perhaps we do uh but of course that got squashed by ontario and quebec uh, so uh, Irving, still in need of this product, uh, now is deciding to ship it uh, 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 by ship, 
transported by ship. Well, think, how do you do that? Canada, you can't, wouldn't it be nice if there's just a river, like ran right next to the Trans-Canada, all the way across? Doesn't happen. So they're going to go down to the Panama Canal, then go up the East Coast. Think about that for a while. Uh, let's bring in Dan McTagg, former Liberal MP and Canadians for Affordable Energy. He is with us now. Dan, thanks for the time. Much appreciated. Oh, good to be here, Scott. So what are your thoughts on this? Is this an, in, an ingenious way around something, or is this just proof how absolutely insane this industry has become as far as government and regulation and such? Well, I think it illustrates for uh, many people that we do have various types of oil in Canada. Heavy oil, which, of course, gets a lot of attention. We have the light, sweet oil, the stuff that uh, Irving can process. And it does really come down to a question of money. Obviously, uh, it's more expensive for Irving to buy Saudi oil than it is to buy Canadian uh, par or Edmonton par oil, which is uh, uh, significantly more uh, uh, grade-worthy than uh, than other light, tight shale oil that you get from the United States. But it has to be mixed with heavier slates of oil because uh, you can't make diesel. You can't make jet fuel. There's a lot of products you can't make with U.S. Uh, oil. It's just too damn light. It's almost gasoline when it comes out of the ground. Uh, so yeah, it is. Uh, it is ironic that uh, Irving would be uh, looking to the to the west coast. Uh, the problem there, of course, is we only have one little tiny pipeline that brings product out to the sea, and that's uh, in Vancouver at uh, Burnaby, uh, where the Trans Mountain terminus is, and that, of course, is a clogged pipeline. So I guess they're going to see if they can get a deal uh, on some oil that they can get down there, but. Uh, I guess too bad we didn't have the Trans Mountain Pipeline. Maybe they could fill up and get two tankers to there. Better yet, as you quite rightly pointed out, why in goodness name did we allow the Energy East Pipeline to be killed by the federal liberals and their buddies in the uh, green environmental uh, organizations? That's the critical issue. You know, when we think about how much, and we've talked about this many times, you know, how many tanker cars, rail tanker cars roll across this country through neighborhoods carrying this stuff because people think that's better than, than building a pipeline. And now we're putting it on a ship, sailing it down to the Panama Canal <laughs> through and across and up that way. I understand this is over twice the distance of a pipeline. How can that possibly be saving energy? Well, because we're stupid in this country, but put it bluntly. And Boy, are we ever, Dan. Like, that is just, like, considering we considering we refine this in the east and we bring it out of the ground in the in the west and we have to go down to the Panama Canal to get it there, what well, the hell has happened to this country? And even the stuff that we get off the, uh, the east coast isn't uh, dedicated for Canadian refiners either. So think about it. We have uh, some of the biggest oil fields now in the, uh, in the uh, northwest Atlantic. Uh, much of it off the coast of Newfoundland, and we can't get that oil back to a Canadian refinery. Now, it really doesn't matter to me how we do this, but the reality is that uh, from an efficiencies point of view, uh, it's pretty clear that uh, uh, we've allowed a certain policy uh, to really pervert the minds of Canadians into believing somehow oil is bad. And yet, listen, <laughs> without, without oil, you'd be uh, SOL. Uh, you'd be up a creek without a paddle. Uh, if you didn't have fossil fuels to fight back uh, on the plastics, the syringes, the masks, everything. So, you know, I think Canadians really have to get out of their, their, their sort of uh, environmental stupor, which basically is, a, you know, permitted them to think that uh, uh, only Canadian oil is bad and that we shouldn't have pipelines in this country. Um, I think we're going to learn a lesson, though. I mean, the economy is not going to allow 
morons to come out and, and tell us that uh, oh we should use this opportunity of uh, uh, of an economy that's on its uh, you know it's on its uh, you know on its back literally uh, as an opportunity to say well maybe we should just bring in and introduce more renewable energy anybody who thought that was a great idea only has to look at the fact that uh, we're paying what five and a half billion dollars a year to subsidize the cost of uh, McGinty and uh, Wynn's uh, uh, you know green energy plan and that's the same group of people by the way who invented that who now preside around. Justin Trudeau. It's also why you're paying a silly, stupid, ridiculous carbon tax, which isn't going to do a damn thing to reduce the emissions. So, look, uh, any way you slice this, uh, it, it's nice to have these wonderful debates and have these you know, rarefied, uh, you know, uh, linguistic uh, battles back and forth and uh, championing of the idea. It is extremely dumb what we've done in this country, and we're paying for it, and we're paying a significant uh, price for it. And of course, Anybody who's from the United States or around the world is probably laughing at what Irving's having to do because we're too stupid to get a pipeline built across this country. And yes, you know what? If you oppose pipelines, then you are stupid. And there's no other way of describing it because I've spent 20 years as a politician uh, trying to have the most eloquent debates, strong debates on these things. It doesn't, uh, it doesn't move these people except to really ridicule them for what they are, morons. Um, I, but will this story resonate with Canadians? Because I, I'm trying to figure out how a government can convince Canadians it's better to ship oil across the country by rail through towns or even now down to the Panama Canal and back up again instead of building a line. Like that just well, seems absolutely <laughs> absurd. And you do it at a time when uh, the cost of, uh, of, of uh, ships has gone through the roof because they're using it as storage. So, yeah, it is extremely dumb, and it, it just doesn't make any sense. But then again, you know, you're asking people who have been trained, brainwashed in our schools into believing that somehow they're responsible for, you know, a 1.5-degree change in the weather. Oh, by the way, did you check outside today? Kind of cool these days, eh? Here it yeah. is May, and I'm still using my furnace, my propane furnace, so I'm, I'm paying a huge carbon tax. Uh, and like last year, that carbon tax isn't going to cover uh, the amount of the rebate that I'm going to be getting. But I digress. The reality here is that for many of us, it's uh, we just shake our heads. And I, there are some days uh, when I wonder how this country could even conceivably be properly governed when you have such idiotic uh, examples uh, of where uh, policies like this have led to having to really do cartwheels in order to get oil to one of our refineries. I think it's great that someone's finally recognized It'd be a wonderful idea to have Canadian oil, proce- Canadian oil processed in Canadian refineries, uh, especially when it has such value, heavy and light, uh, especially when we have an eclectic variety. But it does really underscore what Canadians have done to damage themselves. You literally, as Canadians, cut your nose off to spite your face. And that's really to make a bunch of people down in the United States who are really renewables-focused, uh, environment-focused, as Michael Bohr pointed out. They're all about money. It's all a, really a, a falsehood. There's lots of chatter, especially with what's happened with COVID-19, about how we have become too dependent on other countries. How will COVID-19 change this discussion? Because again, we seem to be, we seem to be shipping our, our energy everywhere except to our own backyard. Yeah. Well, I think we're all learning to become self-reliant again. Uh, and trying to manage for ourselves. And uh, those who thought it was a brilliant idea to take, you know, you, you can <laughs> you get mad as much as you want as Trump, but he called these guys out a lot earlier and said, we're not going to let you do that anymore. You want to manufacture, you want to sell in this country, you have to invest in this country. And thank goodness he did, because they're less, re- they're less reliant on China for things like uh, you know, equipment to uh, fend off a coronavirus that began in that country. 
uh, and uh, likely expanded because of that country's deceit. So, I mean, we have to be very careful. It's not just you know, the same folks out there who talk a big deal about green and eco and the stuff also talk about ethical trades. Well, there's nothing ethical about what we're doing right now with respect to China. Uh, and I don't want to beat up on China. It's pretty simple. You've got a dictatorship. Uh, they suppress information. They've caused the world a significant amount of pain as a result of their deception. Uh, they treat uh, you know those who have revealed this as if they are pariah. Uh, they've many of them have disappeared. No, I think when this is all said and done, Canadians are going to have to start to do go back to the good old days. When you're buying a product. Look at the label. If it says China on it, make a decision uh, whether or not you can afford another nine or ten weeks and uh, two hundred and fifty-two billion dollars in a national deficit. And then think about it when you're uh, trying to struggle to keep your job or make your pay mortgage payments uh, for your home or for your business. So with Canada being in the economic situation it is, because nobody could have foreseen COVID-19 uh, coming, uh, how much pressure does it push on government, put on government, to get these energy projects complete, finally? Not only well, from an economic standpoint, but also so we don't have to depend on everyone else to, to, to wipe our rear end. Well, you know, you have the you, you, you have still the... Uh, the strong infrastructure in place to be able to take your own product and refine it and process it and sell to the rest of the world. Uh, and of course, there is a demand and there will continue to be a demand for fossil fuels. And let me make it really clear to our friends on the, on the green side, who I referred to a little earlier as morons, because they are. The reality is that the world is going to continue to use fossil fuels. And for good reason. They've backed the wrong crisis. The crisis is pandemics. The crisis is the ability for the world to bounce back. And to have that kind of what they call a V recovery. So you, you, you go from where you were back at, uh, you know, February, you drop and you come right back up. To do that, we have to back our winners. That's manufacturing and it's our energy sector. Whether you like it or not, those are the only two ways in which you're going to be able to get this economy out. And you know what, Scott, I sat there as an opposition guy, consumer critic, treasury board critic, the whole thing uh, for the official opposition and that back then a minority government. We got out of the 2008 uh, 2009 economic crisis because we were selling $40 billion in oil every single year. We were able to use the oil industry, the, our resource sector, our natural gas and oil sector, as the proverbial tractor that pulled the Canadian economy out of the ditch. We're in a further situation than we, are, than we were then. We're in a far more, uh, you know, a far more serious position. We're going to need this sector to work hard. We're going to need it to be viable. Uh, the last thing we need is uh, hammering excuses and uh, garbage coming out of the mouths of people who know that their gig is up on, on environmental and pushing their climate agenda. What we need is to get that industry back up and running and be viable very quickly. The world wants our oil. Even Irving wants our oil, yeah, even though it didn't do a whole lot to help us with energy yeast. So I think that's a good sign. And uh, uh, next time you hear someone talking nonsense about how this is a great opportunity to push the Paris Climate Accord, just remind them that uh, China is building out another 200 uh, coal plants around the world. It's Belt and uh, Road Project uh, financing another 25 to 30 uh, more coal power than all the coal power that exists in the United States today. So make no mistake, it doesn't matter what we do here. We've got to make sure all the players are on board. And best thing for us to do right now is get clean natural gas, clean oil to the rest of the world. The world's moving forward and only Canada and Canadians are stopping it. We have certainly seen with consumption going down, because the world's literally been paralyzed, 
you know, how that has changed pollution and such around the world. Are you surprised that extreme climate activists have not jumped on this more? Because either either we don't want to hear about this discussion right now or or, or they should be taking advantage of this. Uh, are you surprised we're not hearing more about this now? Well, I mean, we've had to cancel the. Or does that uh, seem frivolous when it? What, does that seem frivolous when it comes to saving the planet? Is far well, from a pandemic. Well, I think they're still pushing it, and I still think they believe, quite uh, to their to their constituency, that uh, you know it's. But is there about, a new reality here? Well, there's a massive new reality. I think for a lot of people now, it's uh, it's wake up, smell the coffee, because the fact is. In two to three, four weeks, will you have a job? Will you be able to afford to pay for your business, your house? Uh, and of course, uh, what, are we gonna, what is it going to take for the Canadian economy to be jump-started in such a position that it gets back to where it was? And I don't see anything, uh, you know, out of alternative energies, renewables, that's going to do that. What I do see with those is a big amount of money out of my pocket. Think of the number of people who've had to pay a lot more for hydro because of the shenanigans that happened 10 years ago and locked us in for 20 to 25. But I think what we're going to see coming out of this is uh, a simple reality. And I know that the federal liberals are making, you know, doing their their business with respect to uh, talking to people about environment and clean and Trudeau is doing nonsense. But I can tell you, his ministers are scared to death because they know full well. And here I'm referring to Seamus O'Regan, uh, Chrystia Freeland, uh, and uh, there's another minister involved with infrastructure there as well that know full well. That if we don't have projects up and running and ready from the get-go, when the all-clear signal is given, uh, this country is going to falter. It will default on its uh, on its uh, significant amounts of money that it is uh, that it is borrowed. Uh, it will not have uh, the economic bounce back from small business who are the, really the backbone of the economy because they can't bring people back to work quick enough. They will not have the clientele there. Uh, so you know, <laughs> if you're going to trade away your golden goose and give away your economic engine as you have done with natural gas and oil uh, in my view uh, i think it's pretty simple that uh, you're going to wind up in a far worse situation and look uh, climate issues are subordinate to economic realities and we've got to get the fossil fuel industry up and running very quickly because not only can it inject revenues and pay down debts and create jobs and create economic uh, opportunity it's also likely to put us back in the driver's seat when it comes to the next several years of economic growth. So let, let's start backing our winners and knock off this business that turned out to be wrong anyways. This whole pandemic crisis has demonstrated for every single Canadian and everyone around the world uh, that the idea of climate is a wonderful no- notion, but not one single person has died of it. Not one single island in the Pacific has been flooded because of it. So all of this nonsense and all this gibberish that we've been sho- that's been shoved down our throat for the past 20 to 30 years was absolute nonsense, but we do know the people now, thank, thanks to Michael Moore, who the people are who are making a lot of money on, uh, on, this, uh, on this renewables process. So let's get back to reality here. Let's start to build for ourselves. Let's become more self-reliant. Let's start backing our winners, and let's get back to buying Canadian. You know, it's interesting. Uh, in this last eight weeks, we've certainly realized what is important and what we've taken for granted, uh, whether it's health care, whether it's supplies, whether it's our old uh, seniors, our older folks, 
uh, whether it is energy self-sufficiency. We haven't been talking about any of that stuff in Ontario for the last 10 to 20 years. We've been talking every couple of years about teachers' contracts and green energy stuff. And again, we've completely neglected the basic needs that everybody wants. Health care, taking, taking care of your seniors, making sure that your energy self-sufficient. That stuff's been absent from any discussion for the last 10 to 20 years in this province, it seems, Dan. Well, yeah, it has. And because we've been able to borrow our way to, through a problem and hire people in the civil service and uh, public sector to augment the uh, and give the false solution that everything's fine. Well, things are not fine. And you have now uh, a 50% add-on to the national debt. That's not including what the provinces and municipalities have had to do. Sooner or later, that piper is going to come back and call the tune, and we're going to have to wind up paying for it. And there's not many other options that you have. Your best bullets have now been sort of surrendered. So perhaps there is an awakening among Canadians. Uh, if there isn't, well, then they can wallow in you know what could be years of dislocation and, and, and poverty. And that will be something that we brought upon ourselves. Uh, quite apart from what, how this pandemic was handled or how it wasn't handled, who was responsible for it, who wasn't, uh, is the fact that uh, we had, we went into this recession, we went into this crisis ill prepared, and with our with our eyes gazed completely in a different direction. And and many of us, including our own government, is still in denial in terms of its pronouncements. Mm. It still thinks that you have to have a carbon tax in the middle of a bloody crisis. Now, how stupid yeah. is that? And how stupid do you have to be to actually vote and think that's a wonderful idea? Because it's not going to accomplish anything. And it's, of course, this both environmentalists and I think even the parliamentary budget officers pointed out, as have others, it hasn't done a damn thing to slow down Canada's emissions, if that's your big deal. But we've spent an inordinate amount of time and capital on baloney, and it's cost the economy, it's cost jobs, and it's cost our, our livelihood. I think now we have to realize that uh, uh, the gig is up. This false argument that somehow the world is coming to an end and that people are going to die, Oh, they will, but it won't be because of climate. It'll be because mm. of what we've done in terms of our inability to fend off uh, one of the most important uh, uh, things that have happened in our in our generation, and that's the rise of pandemics. This isn't going to be the first one either. Make no mistake, I think, and no, you don't have to be a, a complete expert. This is going to happen again and again and again, and we're going to need fossil fuels, whether we like it or not, hydrocarbons and their products, to fend off and to prevent uh, another disaster from taking place because the country can't afford uh, going down the road of bu- budgets and deficits and paying for people to stay at home when, in fact, uh, a thriving economy uh, does need, uh, at some point, mm-hmm. some kind of ability to pay these things back. Healthcare, jobs, and the economy, they always seem to be the top three things that voters are on voters' minds, yet for the last two elections, they have not been represented at all, and I think this is further proof of this as we get caught with our pants down with no supplies. Dan McTagg, former Liberal MP and Canadians for Affordable Energy, thanks so much for the time. Much appreciated, Dan. All right, we're hearing lots of information, uh, positive information in regard to modeling and and flattening of curves as such and such, and we're starting to hear uh, various provinces start to open up what is going on around them. Uh, a lot of areas, uh, garden centers, outside sort of thing, outside areas where social distancing is uh, obviously uh, less of a challenge than it is in a, a restaurant or, or some t- type of small retail uh, situation. And the good news is, is that Hamilton's Golf and Country Clubs are teeing up and getting ready to open up their business with some restrictions. Let's bring in uh, Nigel Bowerman, director of golf, Flamborough Golf and Country Club, and is with us now. Nigel, thanks for the time. Much appreciated. Yeah, absolutely. Thanks for having me on the show today, uh, Scott. Uh, hopefully I can answer your questions as best of my abilities with what we have kind of uh, 
going at this point in time. Well, the first question is, if my clubs were in my car, could I come to your place right now? <laughs> I wish I could say yes to you. <laughs> uh, All right. right so now, yeah, it's, uh, we're still up in the air, but uh, it looks like we're heading towards that direction. So what what sort of information have you received from government? We certainly heard the premier say that uh, that golf courses and such could start getting ready, marinas as well. What are you waiting for? What what sort of word do you need? So yeah, right now, basically what we can do is we're we're pretty much maintaining the golf course, making sure when everybody kind of does is allowed to come back to the golf course, it's obviously in great shape. Um, but unfortunately, we haven't got the go-ahead to say that that's a thing yet, and we don't have a hard date set when we will be allowed to come back to the golf course. But uh, right now, it's it's pretty much planning it out, making sure everybody's safe when they're here at the uh, golf course, obviously, and making sure, obviously, it's an enjoyable experience, too, as well. And how much of the staff do you have working just preparing for the season to open up? Uh, yeah, so right now, it's a lot of the management team. Uh, we got a pretty good management team here. Everybody's pitching in, trying to do a little bit different tasks. We've got uh, we've got chefs out on mowers. We've got accountants raking leaves. Everybody's kind of lending a hand uh, mm. just to kind of make sure everything's all ready to go, which is kind of cool. I've never seen it. I got to uh, actually experience some different stuff myself, which is was definitely an enjoyable experience, I must say. So what does the course look like? What's the winter been like uh, to golf courses? Is it, is it going to be a good season as far as the condition of the course? Uh, I Honestly, I don't think I've ever seen it this nice, to be honest. Uh, it was a pretty good winter. Uh, there wasn't much ice or snow damage or anything like that. So the course is looking green. The greens are looking good. Divots and fairways are repaired from the fall, obviously. And I think once we open, everybody should be quite surprised when they get out here. Any idea what business will look like when you do, uh, uh, when you are allowed to open? Any idea of what sort of changes you're going to have to make or challenges you'll have? Yeah. So right now, since not everything is kind of stipulated yet as per the government. Uh, we've been kind of looking around. Uh, obviously, there are some provinces in the country that have opened back up. So some of the things we'll probably have to take into account when you're thinking about single cart riders on golf carts, uh, longer tee time intervals, making sure social distancing is taken into effect. Uh, just stuff on the golf course that's probably not going to be available when it comes to ball washers, benches, stuff like that, bunker rakes, uh, and just kind of the basic stuff when you're thinking food and beverage too as well which might be up in the air so i think it'll be different for sure but we'll get through it and i think once we get back to business i think we'll be pretty busy what about something like the clubhouse or even uh, food and beverage services outside the clubhouse any idea how that's going to look yeah so when we're talking about kind of the clubhouse um, i'm guessing it's probably going to be off limits for the first little while but uh, hopefully the food and beverage aspect, we can do some sort of a takeout service if that's available uh, and just try and help out and see what we can do, kind of thinking outside the box because I, I think this year is going to be very important to kind of do stuff differently than what we've ever done before but still obviously offer the service that we've always come to, to offer and go from there. Obviously, being outside, you're at a great advantage here because it, it makes uh, distancing uh, easier. Uh, other than extending the times between each uh, each round of play, per se, uh, really, is there much else? I know this, I'm making it sound like a, a minimal here, but is there much else you have to do to the actual playing of the game itself? Yeah, so that's it's a good question when you say that because I think a lot of it's going to be once you get out there. The good thing about golf is it's, it's a pretty social distancing sport already when you think about it. Um, but it still comes down to us making sure, obviously, our marshals and starters are monitoring people when they're out there, making sure, obviously, 
they're staying safe and uh, obviously enjoying their experience out here. Um, but it's like anything, too, as well. Uh, golf is still one of those sports where you still like to talk to people. You still want to socialize when you're out here. But, yeah, I think it's going to be a lot of day-to-day operation stuff, kind of going with the punches a little bit, as per se. Not uh, No pun intended, but I think the big thing about it is going to be uh, it's going to be a learning experience. <laughs> uh, lots of people love to walk. Um, I, I'm one of those guys that enjoy the cart. Uh, so how does that change things? Is it one person? Would it be one person for carts uh, per cart? And yep. boy, that's going to burn through your carts pretty quick, isn't it? Yeah, so absolutely. So kind of the way it's looking that what other provinces have done is they've had single cart riders or people who live in the same household can ride in the same cart together. Right. So that could be an option that we might be looking at too as well. Um, we kind of do hope that people do enjoy the the side of of walking and might kind of want to get back to that and get a little bit of exercise because I'm sure people are tired of being stuck in the household. What about uh, the amount of total players that you put through per day? Do you see that being down? I mean, we were talking to other business people, whether it's restaurants or what have you, if there's social distancing and say you got a restaurant, it's like 100 people in it, now you may only have to put, you'll be able to put half the capacity in it. Has there been any rules as to how much capacity you can have on the course? Uh, there hasn't been anything set as of now how much you can have on the golf course, but obviously with the, the social spacing and stuff like that when it comes to tee time intervals, you you realistically won't be able to put through as many people, um, which will kind of affect, obviously, what your max capacity for the day is. Uh, but right now, I guess uh, I wish I had that answer for you, but it, we'll, yeah. we'll wait for them to make that decision. So at this point, uh, Nigel, you're waiting for the okay from government, and then you uh, right. open up the doors, per se, or open up the phone lines, I guess, and let people uh, start to reserve a tea time? Or are there people that are already chomping on the bid? Is there already a list? <laughs> oh, yeah. We get emails and phone calls on a daily basis. Really? People looking for that answer uh, when we're opening and obviously when the tea sheet's going to be open for uh, booking purposes. Uh, but yeah, but at this point, at this point, you're not taking any names for that first uh, that first spot, are you? Not yet, but uh, I'm sure there'll be a lineup. All right, Nigel Bowerman's been with us, director of golf, Flamborough Golf and Country Club, and I guess the best advice here, Nigel, is just wait for see what the province says and then go from there. Yeah, stay positive, and I think we'll be uh, obviously golfing sooner rather than later. Nigel Bowerman, director of golf, Flamborough Golf and Country Club. Nigel, thanks for the time. Good luck this season. Absolutely, thanks, Scott, for having me on the show today. Thank you. You're listening to the Scott Thompson Show podcast on 900 CHML. All right. uh, Fires from last year, potential war, quarantine, uh, uh, coronavirus, COVID-19. Now hornets that are deadly, murderous even as being described. Let's bring in Dr. Gard Otis, professor at the School of Environmental Studies, University of Guelph. He is with us now. Gord, thanks for the time. Gard, thanks for the time. Much appreciated. Hi, Scott. Thank you. So tell us about this hornet. Why is it so, why are we hearing so much information about it now? Uh, Well, first of all, I wouldn't put it in the category of any of those things you started off describing. I don't think it's anywhere near as bad as um, all those other horrible things you started off with. But um, it is a really, really large insect. There are actually two species of giant Asian hornets that look identical and act and behave almost the same. Um, and in British Columbia last year, they actually caught, if they identified them right, they actually caught both species. So they could actually both be in Canada. Um, 
And they they are very large wasps. Figure look at the look at your thumb, and then think of how big a stinger on your thumb would be if a wasp was that big, and then think how much venom would be in it. So, um, they if you do get stung by them, they pack a real punch. But getting stung by them, it takes some effort. They're not out there trying to sting people and actively uh, destroy our lifestyle as we know it today. Not like COVID nineteen is. That's for sure. Uh, so how big are these? Describe the size again. Yeah, like the size of your thumb, like five centimeters long with a stinger that's three-quarters of a centimeter long. They're um, massive. They're the largest largest wasps in the world that we know of. So when you saw one or when you see one, you will know what it is because of the, of the size and the coloring of it? Generally, although um, the average person doesn't see that many wasps. So if they right. see a pretty big wasp, they might go, oh, that's an Asian hornet. And this has actually happened in Ontario where they were misidentified. Uh, they misidentified a species that's, that is here um, already and is harmless. Um, but they do have a bright yellow, very, very large head um, that's pretty distinctive. Like their head looks massive compared to their body size, and that's really mm. distinctive. And you said yellow. Uh, are they orange in color at all? Uh, they're kind of yellow, orange, and black. They, right. Actually, um, I have not seen that many specimens from different places, but um, their color varies all across Asia, wherever they occur, so that just looking at one by its color, you're not going to go, oh, that's that and that's that. Right. You actually have to look at more in depth at specific features around the eye and various body parts to identify them from uh, especially these two species that are so similar. Now, from what I understand, the reason that there is such a threat here is because of, of the harm they can do to other bee populations. That's correct. That's, uh, so uh, how, how severe is that? Uh, that's an unknown. Uh, we got a bunch of things that have yet to happen. One, we don't really know how widespread these hornets are in the Pacific Northwest. We don't know how many queens manage to make it across during the winter time they these colonies disintegrate in the fall they basically die off and the only thing that survives are mated queens but for about five months of the year from say november up until about now um they're basically hibernating they're quiet they're down in the ground or they're in uh, loose soil or they're in hay or some protected place and that, and while they're in those places, it's very easy to pick them up, a load of lumber or something like that, move them across the Pacific, and unload it. And next thing you know, you've got uh, mated hornets in place. But we don't know how many of those queens got introduced. We don't know how much genetic variability they have, um, which is going to make a big difference in terms of how well they're able to establish a, a sustained population, a sustainable population. Um, yeah, there's a lot how, of unknowns. How big a threat are they? By the end of the summer, uh, they like to turn their foraging habits toward larger sources of food, and that generally means other social insect colonies, like other colonies of wasps. But beehives just happen to be almost the perfect combination because our European bees have no defenses against them because they've just never experienced them in their history. And... Um, and so they come to the, and, and the hornets are able to recruit their nest mates. So when one finds a nest, they'll go back home and tell the others, we don't know how that happens, but somehow or other they, they tell the others to come and find the little odor mark they left on the hive. And pretty soon you've got 20 or 30 hornets, and then they attack, and they just literally 
kill all the worker bees very, very quickly. They, they kill about four bees a, a minute. An individual, bee, an individual wasp can kill about four wow. bees a minute. And so they just destroy the, the worker bees, and then they have honey. It's like, it's like they just stocked up the refrigerator for a pandemic. They've got honey in there to keep their metabolism going. They've got all sorts of protein, food, and fats in the, in the form of these little baby bees, the bee grubs and the, the developing pupae. And so for about two weeks, they're going to have all the food they need to keep their colony going before they have to go find more food. Uh, we obviously know how uh, important the bee population is into pollination and, and, and keeping the world alive, per se. Are these hornets a real threat to the average bee population? Uh, I don't think so. Um, as I said, our, our bees that are originally from Europe don't have any natural defenses against these hornets. So um, they are very susceptible, but... In Japan, they've been keeping European honeybees for 40, 50 years. Um, they have, they've always had a giant Asian hornets in Japan, Vespa mandarinia, and um, they live side by side, and they do it. They've developed various kinds of traps that they can put around the entrance of the beehive so that either the wasps can't get to the bees or that the wasps are actually trapped and killed when they come and try to um, attack the, the colony of bees. So I think if these wasps really do get established, we have, we have smart beekeepers. We have a great extension service across the country, lots of cooperation between the various provincial apiculturists and the um, ministries of agriculture. And I think we'll very quickly see a, adoption of various kinds of techniques to protect the hives and allow commercial hives or hobby hives to survive. Wild bees in the bush might be more at risk. Um, but then again, they're scattered out and around, and it's not like it's going to be that easy for the wasps to find them. So I don't think it's the end of bees. I, I don't think I don't. It's not one more thing that they needed, but it's one more thing I think they could survive with a little bit of help from us. Is this something the average Canadian should be concerned with? At this time, absolutely not. Um, as individual hornets out foraging for food, they are what I like to call pussycats. They, well, not your aggressive kind of pussycat. They're mm -hmm. very gentle. Um, we actually had, when, one of those, when I did some research on the sister species in Vietnam in 2013, we actually wanted them to attack um, one particular hive, and they showed up at one a couple hives away. And my job was to sit there and basically hit them with a net and get them to move. And there were about 20 hornets there. And I thought, this is probably a really bad idea. If I start to get stung, this is not going to go well. Hmm. And yet they just, it was like nothing happened. They just pushed them out of the way. So un individual people encountering individual hornets out and about, not a risk. Um, the big risk would be if somebody were to stumble on a nest, which is usually in the ground, um, let's say you stepped on it like you might a yellow jacket nest, except instead of having, you know, one centimeter long yellow jackets, you've got five centimeter long giant hornets with about 50 times as much venom per wasp. And uh, that happens every year in Japan and in China and Vietnam, and people don't survive those encounters in most cases, mm. in many cases. It's not a happy scene. Uh, Dr. Gard Otis. It's not going to happen often. And we, we have to say that that is extremely rare. Dr. Gard Otis has been with us, professor at the School of Environmental Sciences, University of Guelph, talking about 
the new breed of hornet that we're starting to see. Uh, Guard, thank you so much for the time and insight. Much appreciated. Stay well. All right. Thank you, and stay at home. Bye-bye. Thank you. The Scott Thompson Show, weekdays from noon to 3 on 900 CHML. This is the Scott Thompson Podcast, available on Apple Podcast and Google Podcast or wherever you get yours. And don't forget to subscribe, rate, and review so you don't miss a thing. I'm Scott Thompson, and thanks for listening.